Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at indivisibleradio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag indivisibleradio or leave us a voicemail at indivisibleradio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. I'm Brian Lehrer from WNYC in New York, your Tuesday night host for Indivisible, our national call-in show for the first hundred days of the Trump administration. Almost halfway there, day 47. Wow. Kind of hard to believe how new and how long it all feels at the same time, right? Remember, this is the show where we try to get out of our political bubbles and actually listen to our fellow Americans across political lines. There's a seat at this table for everyone. On these Tuesday individual episodes, we keep track of how this unbound president is breaking American norms for better or for worse. And by now, day 47, I think we can say pretty definitively that Donald J. Trump is governing to create a new norm of a new nationalism, a 21st century American nationalism. That's really the central organizing principle of what Trump and his chief uh, strategist, Steve Bannon, talk about time and time again, right? Here's an example. You know how we casually call the president of the United States the leader of the free world? Well, Donald Trump apparently doesn't want that job. He said it in plain English in his address before Congress last week. My job is not to represent the world. My job is to represent the United States of America. Leader of the free world, sorry, not interested. That's nationalism. In fact, in his inaugural address, Trump suggested that being the leader of the free world has been bad for the United States, bad for the Americans he represents. For many decades, we've enriched foreign industry at the expense of American industry, subsidized the armies of other countries while allowing for the very sad depletion of our military. We've defended other nations' borders while refusing to defend our own. Trump from his inaugural address, and no more looking for the lowest paid workers and the least expensive items in the store. We will follow two simple rules. Buy American and hire American. Don't tell Walmart that that's the new definition of patriotism. In fact, don't tell Donald and Ivanka Trump. They still have clothing lines manufactured by the cheaper labor overseas. But that's the principle. Buy American, hire American, economic nationalism. And we haven't even gotten to the religious or racial or immigration implications of the new nationalism, the really scary parts to many Americans, but we will as we go along. And you can hear similar things from the right-wing nationalist leader in France, Marine Le Pen, the Brexit leaders in Britain, and yes, Vladimir Putin in Russia. We are living in an era of rising nationalism. So is this a good thing? Scary thing? And what do we mean by nationalism anyway? We'll dig into those questions now. And listeners, here's our call-in question for the start of the hour. If you voted for Donald Trump, does his slogan, America First, resonate for you? We'll take calls from people who didn't vote for Trump later in the hour. Don't worry if that's you. But is the word nationalism <clears throat> something you find attractive? 
if you voted for Trump? Is it something you find unifying? Is it something you find belligerent? If I say what Steve Bannon says, that politics is no longer between left versus right, but nationalist versus globalist, does that have meaning to you? Does it draw you in? Do you want the president of the United States to be the leader of the free world? Or do you not really care? Call us if you voted for Donald Trump at 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255, 844-745-TALK. Our first calls tonight go to people who did vote for Donald Trump. Trump voters first tonight. We'll get to non-Trump voters shortly. But did you vote for Trump for his nationalism, despite his nationalism, or is this all a lot of academic hooey and you don't really care what he or Steve Bannon call it? Let's get a few America First Trump voters on the air first. 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255, 844-745-TALK, or write us a comment at hashtag Indivisible Radio, hashtag Indivisible Radio. And as your calls are coming in, Let's meet our first guest, Princeton historian Linda Colley, an expert in nationalism, especially British nationalism. Professor Colley, thanks so much for doing this, and welcome to Indivisible. Pleasure. So what is nationalism? (laughs) When Trump uses the word, what's the historical idea that he's really referring to? Well, um, as in so much else, I think he's got his own versions of things, But he's also speaking in regard to nationalism, actually in regard to quite a long American history. There's a long tradition here in this great country of isolationism. Washington said he didn't want to get involved in European squabbles. There's a long tradition of exceptionalism, the idea that the United States is the city on the hill. But also, and this is perhaps a bit more dangerous, there's a strong tradition of defining the United States against the other. Um, First of all, against the British, um, against Native Americans, against blacks. For many Americans, by the end of the 19th century, you defended the United States by othering Roman Catholic immigrants, the Irish or the Italian. Then you othered the Japanese in the Second World War, and then you othered the communists. So um, there are these traditions of American nationalism. And I think Trump is partly speaking out of that tradition and appealing to that tradition. But of course, you get nationalism across the globe. Jeff in Austin, Texas, is our first caller tonight. Hi, Jeff. You're on Indivisible. Thanks so much for calling in. Thank you. So I guess your question is what I believe about nationalism. Is that your question? Yeah, that's my question. Do you, did you think about nationalism before you voted for Donald Trump? Do you like that he and Bannon are talking about nationalism versus globalism as an organizing principle rather than left versus right? How's this all hitting you? Let me start first, but I, I consider myself a Reagan-esque Republican. So the answer to your question about nationalism, I've watched the economies in which I've worked with over the last 40 years decline based upon that we've given away a comparative advantage to other nations by adding on additional costs time and time again in regard to labor. First, we started with OSHA, CDEP, the EPA. I lived in a community in central Massachusetts where once upon a time there were 10,000 manufacturing jobs 
and I've watched them decline to 1,000 based upon the progressive acts of bureaucracy in this country by adding more and more costs on an annualized basis to industry. And it's wiped out entire generations of manufacturing expertise in this country. I've watched it happen in New England. I've watched it happen in the Middle Atlantic states. And I've seen it even happen in the southeastern states. And it's always been tied back to the same thing, the constant need of the government to expand and taking away comparative advantage and therefore giving away industries in whole to other nations at the expense of our own workers. So you're and seeing big government as the root of it, but then they get intertwined with other nations because of their growing bigness ra- rather than a... Um, uh, a more, I don't know, a globalist ideology being the starting point. It's just the, the tendency of government to grow, am I hearing you right? And then that winds up... Well, I mean, we talk back to the basic economic principles of comparative advantage. Now, that was meant to be on free markets, where if you made shoes better than the country X, and they made wine better than country Y, then you should make wine. Now, in that, in, in that, in that environment, there was no bureaucracy or these you know, invisible hands, if that's what you want mm-hmm. to call them. Right. But it's, it doesn't stir the passions for you, I don't think I'm hearing, in some kind of patriotic or nationalist sense, this is my country, I feel so strongly about my country. This is sort of economic pragmatism for you, yes? Well, it's both. I, I feel strongly about my country, and I feel strongly that we should be able to put our people to work. A job creates pride. A job creates purpose. We're taking away those people who don't go to college, who do not expand beyond the high school level of education. Any ability to get into the mid-American, what you want to call American dream, of being able to elevate themselves to ethics, not education. Mm -hmm. Jeff, I'm going to leave it there, and I really thank you for your call. Thank you for starting us off. Professor Colley, what's the difference between patriotism and nationalism? Or where's the line? Well... Patriotism, I think, is more of a sentiment. I love my country. Um, You know, many of us, most of us would identify with that. Nationalism is closer to an ideology, or it can be. Not only do I love my country, but I think my country is the best. Now, um, you know, again, lots of people think that my country is the best. But You can be on a slippery slope with that. Uh, As with most ideologies, the idea that my country is the best can lead and often has done in practice to thinking, well, therefore, my country has the right to invade others or to take advantage of others or to export uh, our values, our principles somewhere else, whether they want it or not. Andre and Chapel Hill. You're on Indivisible. Hi, Andre. How's it going? So my the point I wanted to bring up is this, that I think it's a lot more simple than, than the media and you guys actually make it out to be because you, you make it a big theory and a big thought-out process. I think the average American... Well, Steve Bannon has made it a big theory and a big thought-out process. I mean, I think, you know, just objectively we're following his lead in that respect. At this, at, you know, at this but moment, the average American that voted for Trump sees this. They only they look at it as a very simple proposition, which is they see money going overseas. For example, towards military programs or 
uh, Israel or any one of our allies or anything that has to do with humanitarian aid, Mm -hmm. and they look around their environment and they see jobs being lost, the government spending money on things that doesn't belong to them, or or to influence relationships that are purely political. So when when most Trump supporters say they are nationalists, they basically are saying, "I want that money being spent mm-hmm. on me." Right, and- I, I, Andre. I'm going to leave it there, and I hear you, and it's very clear. And it comes back again uh, to jobs versus government's expanding ties. Let's go to Richard in Berkeley, California. Richard, you're on Indivisible. Richard, did you vote for Trump? Uh, yes, sir. I, I, voted I have for, to, uh, You have to Trump. say it very quietly um, you know, in Berkeley, don't you? I said you have to say it very quietly in Berkeley, don't you? Well, no. Remember, people listening, uh, Donald Trump had 4 million, what, 470,000 votes. There are plenty of Donald Trump supporters in California. Of course, you know there's a little bit more of the, of the Democrats, but right. uh, yeah, I'm, four, I'm just playing. I'm just million. I'm just playing with you because you're from Berkeley. Right. Go ahead. Well, we also had a pro-Trump march here over the weekend, uh, and we were confronted with violence from the left. Uh, but it's be uh, the question of nationalism. Uh, it's also about true democracy, uh, and also protecting what's ours. I guess on a simpler scale, let's pretend that the our nation is your front yard, or your home, and your little cottage, and you'll. You're going to take care of your front yard. You're going to make sure the, the bushes and everything is trimmed and proper. The rose bushes look nice. Then if there's anything left over in the tank or you're, you've got a little extra energy, then maybe you help your neighbor next door or the guy two doors away. Right now we're at a phase with this, this huge deficit. We, we've got to look after ourselves. I mean, I'm not against immigration. My grandparents are all immigrants. I mean, but, of course, they came here legally, too. Uh, you know, the from the 1880s up until the First World War, those were invited here. They just didn't get on a boat and come. They still had sponsorships or somebody from their township of wherever country they're from, Germany, France, Italy. I got you. Richard, what, what role do you want the United States to play in the world? You heard those clips of Trump from the congressional speech and the uh, inaugural address. Do you, do you want the president of the United States to be the leader of the free world? And if so, what does that mean? I would like for him to be the leader of our nation, and then again, uh, if there's room left over or time after we've cleaned our front yard up, then let's help others, mm-hmm. Israel, et cetera, uh, uh, whomever else, mm-hmm. Mexico, if our neighboring time. countries. Uh, right. If there's time. Yeah. Richard, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. So, Linda Colley, Princeton historian of nationalism, I see that in 1999, you gave a lecture at the invitation of Prime Minister Tony Blair about what, if anything, was left of Britishness at the dawn of the 21st century. What did you think then, and could anything you saw at that time have predicted Brexit and Donald Trump? Um, I don't think anything um, that could happen in Britain could have, you know, had an impact in the United States, uh, an infinitely stronger power. But I think as regards Brexit, one of the things I argued when I talked in front of Tony Blair, and he didn't actually like it very much, but I said, um, actually, the United Kingdom, Britain, needs constitutional remodeling. Um, Actually, a written constitution wouldn't be a bad thing because there's an awful lot of changes. The relationship between England, Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland is shifting. Um, 
and we probably need in the UK, and I think they still do need it, a more federal structure, uh, you need to write it down. Uh, and I think if more creative thought and action had gone into that, uh, some of the bitterness and divisions of Brexit might have been avoided. But of course, a lot of the passion that went into Brexit is exactly like um, some of these very interesting callers who, you know, uh, lots of Americans quite understandably don't like what's happened to manufacturing industry. They feel that a lot of people have lost out from globalization. Well, those sentiments are very active elsewhere. They're certainly very strong in Britain, and that was part of the reason why Brexit happened. Bruno in Riffle, Colorado. You're on Indivisible. Oh, it's rifle. I'm sorry. <laughs> Somebody wrote it down with very comic strip two F's. Riffle once when uh, they refused to uh, allow recreational marijuana here, but it's rifle. Like <laughs> gotcha. So, what do you want to add? Well, uh, I believe that nationalism generally is just kind of like a feel-good, warm, cozy feeling about the whole world. It's it not in touch with reality at all. I mean, the Russians, the Chinese, everybody looks out for themselves first. You look out for your family first. Looking out for your nation first is is natural. I mean, it's, it's, it's a human thing to do. Clearly. And, uh, and, there, and there's no president we've ever... And there's, and there's no president we've ever had who would say that that was not what they put first. But for you, where does this idea of American exceptionalism and American as the beacon of freedom for the rest of the world fit in, if anywhere? Uh, I, it doesn't. Uh, exceptionalism is another thing, a nice, warm, cozy feeling we tell ourselves. Uh, we're no different than anybody else in the world. We're, we're all surviving. We're all interacting and getting along. But you look out for yourself first. And the little guy, the working guy, that's why Trump won. Everybody's ignored him for a long time. It's just like Obama in the White House saying in the Rose Garden that uh, citizenship was just a piece of paper standing in the way of the dreamers. Well, to me, I came here from Germany in 54, and citizenship to me is a membership in the greatest country in the world with more opportunity and freedoms than anywhere else. And I value that citizenship very dearly. And you know, I don't see that happening anymore. The open border liberals are going to destroy our country. Bruno, thank you very much for calling. We're going to take a break, and then we're going to continue. We're going to play some more clips. We're going to add some more guests, and we're going to flip the phones here. We've heard from a handful of Trump supporters on what nationalism means to them. Now we're going to open up the phones for people who didn't vote for Donald Trump. How is this nationalism conversation Sounding to you, 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255 on Indivisible. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. This is Indivisible. The number to call is 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255.
And I'm Brian Lehrer from WNYC in New York, your Tuesday night host for Indivisible, our national call-in show for the first 100 days of the Trump administration, the show where we try to get out of our political echo chambers and actually listen to our fellow Americans across political lines. There's a seat at this table for everyone. We talk about Trump changing norms on these Tuesday night shows, and we're talking tonight, if you're just joining, joining us, about Donald Trump, Steve Bannon, and nationalism, their effort to transform the political dynamic in this country from left versus right to what they call nationalist versus globalist. For example, why do they hate the media so much? Well, this version of the answer from Steve Bannon at the Conservative Political Action Conference the other week has Trump as nationalist and the media as globalist. They're corporatist, globalist media that are adamantly opposed, adamantly opposed to an economic nationalist agenda like Donald Trump has. You heard the crowd there. They're tuned into this idea of nationalist versus globalist. They cheered when Bannon said the media is globalist. But it's also beyond economic. It's about race and religion. Here's Bannon on Breitbart in 2015 when he ran Breitbart proposing a Muslim ban wondering why should we spend any American money, and we heard our callers in the first segment talking about why spend any American money unless we take things, uh, take care of things at home. First, why spend any American money vetting immigrants from the Muslim world? Two million um, immigrants from Muslim-majority um, countries have come to the United States since 9-11. Two million. I, I don't understand. Is, isn't this just a way to get Paul Ryan and leadership off the hook to approve this so there's not some big showdown that the American people, and particularly people in the conservative movement and the grassroots movement, are tired of this. The opportunity cost to put in a structure to actually vet these people, the cost to do that, to what end? Can't that money be used in the United States? I mean, I think the issue is, should we just take a pause and a hiatus for a number of years on any any influx from that area of the world, any. And we figure this out later, like in three or four or five years. What is the pressing need that we need to do this, no matter what the vetting system is? Bannon on Breitbart in 2015. And in Trump's address to Congress last week, he only portrayed immigration as a threat, singling out stories like that of a crime victim named Jameel Shaw. Jameel's 17-year-old son was viciously murdered by an illegal immigrant gang member who had just been released from prison. Jamil Shore Jr. was an incredible young man with unlimited potential who was getting ready to go to college where he would have excelled as a great college quarterback. But he never got the chance. His father, who is in the audience tonight, has become a very good friend of mine. Jamil, thank you. So, listeners, we heard earlier from Trump voters with their take on nationalism, and Trump supporters will get back to you later in the hour. But now we invite anyone who did not vote for Trump. As you get familiar with the idea that Trump is running a nationalist government, does that unsettle you or scare you? Does it intrigue you and make you more interested than you were on Election Day or any other reaction? You heard the America First arguments from our first callers. Why not take care of everything at home or pretty much a lot at home uh, before worrying about allies or leader of the free world or any of that stuff? Um, but what is Trump's nationalist agenda 
make you think, make you feel, make you want to say on the radio, if you didn't vote for Trump, call us on the new nationalism, if you didn't, at 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255, or tweet with the hashtag Indivisible Radio. Still with us is Princeton historian Linda Colley, a nationalism expert and author of books including The Britons, Forging the Nation. And joining us, too, is University of Texas historian Peniel Joseph. He founded the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy there, and he's an expert in black nationalism. His books include titles such as Dark Days, Bright Nights, From Black Power to Barack Obama. Professor Joseph, thanks for joining us on Indivisible. Hey, thanks for having me, Brian. What do you hear, and if I can way overgeneralize, what do you think black America hears when Trump and Bannon talk about nationalism versus globalism? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I, think, I think what most African Americans hear is that they're really being excluded from that, that conversation, and um, even though they're uh, at times, rhetorically, Trump has talked about the inner city and saying that the inner city is going to be included. But I think that um, most of his characterization of the inner city has been so negative, so dystopian, that we're really not included um, in this vision unless as scapegoats who are either causing violence or havoc or crime or too hypercritical of the police and law enforcement um, in this sense, uh, Black Lives Matter activists who were unmentioned in the president's speech last week, but who implicitly were mentioned when he, he said that the law enforcement, you know, uh, deserves nothing but praise from all of us and, and, and has, has suffered so much because of um, the criticism. They he, were, he did they start were the speech. Very first words were, it's Black History Month. Yeah, but there's not necessarily a real connection with the words and deeds because uh, remember, Brian, he had that Black History Month breakfast where he, he he sort of implied that Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist, was was still alive, was just some guy he had just finished speaking to. So I think that um, you know you take that with a grain with a grain of salt, and yeah. he he uh, he talked about you know anti-Semitism is evil, but for the most part has has been tone deaf. Uh, to these issues of of racial and gender and social justice, and I think that's in keeping with that philosophy of of nationalism that you're talking about. White nationalism. Sometimes people are calling it the alt right, but I think it's important that we are naming it. And I think that philosophy has been very, very um, hostile to uh, the aspirations and even the citizenship claims and rights of of people of color, of um, Jews, of women. Of, of people who are really perceived as the other. So I would say that African Americans, for the most part, sort of understand that they're not um, really a, a part of the, of the narrative um, that Trump mm-hmm. um, is trying to, uh, trying to draw up. Let's go to Bonnie in Ripton, Vermont. Hi, Bonnie. You're on Indivisible. Hi. Um, I finally got through to you guys. Um, <laughs> I'm not an urban person. I'm, I'm a very rural person from Vermont. And um, You are in Vermont. Though. Yes. The, the Bernie Sanders state. Does it say that on your license yes. plate? <laughs> what? Oh, I said, does it say the Bernie Sanders state on your license plate? I'm just kidding, but go ahead. No, it just, no, it just, but I do have a Bernie uh, bumper sticker. So what is nationalism making you think about? 
nationalism, um, I think, is uh, a dangerous um, a dangerous ploy because um, I think he's uh, our president is ignoring the fact that greatness does not have to do with with winning. It has to do with having an educated. Um, middle-class mm-hmm. population. I don't think um, that winning against the rest of the world is, um, or, or, and shutting out the rest of the world is... Um, if you were listening in the first segment, caller after caller who voted for Trump was saying, um, they weren't talking in terms of winning, they were talking about how we've spread our resources all over the place, big government having this commitment and that commitment, and the ultimate um, goal that a number of callers seem to, uh, or the ultimate result that a number of callers seem to point to, was you know uh, a loss of jobs, and that seemed to be the nationalist project that at least our callers—it's a small sample, I grant you—were um, were interested in getting back. Let's focus on American jobs, then we'll worry about everything else. Yes, well, I think um, the idea of everybody having a job is well. The trouble with that is that it just means, okay, we all have to contribute to the economy so that the economy is the best in the world. Um, I think that's um, short-sighted. Mm-hmm. Bonnie, thank you very much. So, Peniel Joseph, there's also a history in this country of black nationalism. Some might think first of Louis Farrakhan or early Malcolm X. When you write books with black tap Black power in the title. Is that the same thing as black nationalism? Well, not not exactly. In terms of um, when we think about black nationalism, we're talking about unity, self-determination, and the cultural politics of race. And there are are many kinds of black nationalism. So, for instance, um, when we think about the black power movement, you have black nationalisms that are um, pan-Africanist, but also global and internationalist and um, you know, are dialoguing with um, allies who are who are non-black. Um, you also at times have narrow nationalists who have a very very um, specific critique of of white supremacy. And at times there's nationalisms that, in criticizing white supremacy, um, succumb to their own racial blinders by, uh, for example, saying that whites are you know genetically. Um, going to be evil or commit acts of cruelty to blacks. But for the most part, when we think about the nationalism we see in America right now with things like Kwanzaa um, in the aftermath of the black power period, it's, it's very, very secular. So it's a nationalism that is, is talking about sort of the struggle um, for, for black dignity in both the U.S. and in a global context, but is not um, somehow... Uh, uh, antagonistic um, towards towards a multiracial, multicultural democracy. Linda Colley, is there uh, in Britain or around the world a history of minority nationalism or press group nationalism that's similar to or different from the kind of majority nationalism we've been hearing about from Trump and Trump voters? Um, yeah, I, I mean, you know, one thinks of... Um, uh, anti-colonial nationalisms uh, emerging against empires. Um, so Irish nationalism would be different from British nationalism. 
different, though um, some Irish nationalists uh, were, you know, they had, as, as your other guests pointed out, uh, all nationalists can succumb to a kind of racism, if you like, or a kind of, you know, belief in the virtue of their own particular group. So uh, some late 19th, early 20th century Irish nationalists felt that only Gaelic-speaking Irish people who were Catholic were really true Irish, Mm -hmm. uh, and that Irish people who were Protestant or who couldn't speak Gaelic were not really part of the elect. Uh, And these kind of tensions are still being fought over in Ireland. So, and that's a classic pattern that you can agree to oppose an empire or certain rulers, but then getting um, agreement among yourselves, uh, that can be just as difficult. Guillermo in Olaf, Kansas. You're on Indivisible. Hi, Guillermo. Hey, how are you doing? Good. What are you thinking? Well, I was just thinking that it's, you know, I'm, I, I'm not a Trump supporter. I don't agree with a lot of his policies. I think nationalism is a great thing, you know, bring, bring jobs back to America. But I think uh, what Trump is doing is basically complete opposite. He wants to enrich the 1%. You lower um, law, you lower government involvement in things, and what happens? Jobs come back to America, but, you know, companies start dirtying up the environment. They start um, using cheaper materials, using cheaper uh, wages. So all he's basically doing is just conning the working class, trying to say, hey, I'm for you, I want to work for you, I'm here to represent you, when at the end of the day, all he's doing is he's making himself and his friends as the 1% more money. And at the end of the day, I think that's all Trump supports is the 1% and the more uh, and getting the rich richer. He's he, not representing the, the working, working man. He says he's pressuring these companies. I think Ford maybe was the latest one this week to not move jobs overseas. Bannon talks with true fervor about seeing jobs and wages for American citizens go up. You think it's really all about themselves? Oh, I, I completely think that's the case. I mean, uh, the recent involvement with Exxon Mobil, okay, uh, great. Exxon Mobil is bringing back jobs to America. Who was the, who just recently came on board to the government? Who was actually on the Exxon Mobil uh, CEO? Mm. So of course it's, it's all interconnected. And I honestly think you know a job is great as long as it's a good paying job. It has benefits, and the employer and the employee have a mutually beneficial relationship. But if it's only the employer in the top uh, 10% gaining anything, a job is not exactly good. It's not going to fit the, the working mm-hmm. class. Guillermo, thank you so much. David in Baton Rouge, you're on Indivisible. Hi, David. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, I'm a bit concerned because the Trump, the nationalism has always been something of a piece of the Republican Party. Trump has doubled, tripled, quadrupled down on that specifically. But that brand and extremeness of nationalism is missing the point. The America is not involved with the rest of the globe purely out of a sense of charity. America is involved in the rest of the globe because it is in America's self-interest to support a safe, secure, as democratized globe. So if we become entirely insular and push the rest of these obligations to the side, in the end, that sense of nationalism is only going to hurt us in the long run as things become more chaotic 
and we lose out on the number of real democracies around the around the globe. Interesting, uh, Linda Colley, does does Britain have the same conversation about its place in the world, or is it really un- unique to the United States uh, right now? What David just said, even the idea that if we're not pressing the idea of democracy around the world, democracy is going to flounder. Uh, I, I think David is absolutely right that um, the idea that you you're just doing good deeds for the rest of the world out of um, unselfishness. Uh, this is actually a kind of soft power, and it's very, very, uh, you know, important. Uh, and we have um, slightly similar arguments in Britain. Uh, Britain made a very wise decision some years ago that every year it would give a portion of its revenue in foreign aid uh, to help poorer countries and poorer regions take up various educational projects and so forth. And you do get some people, including quite a lot of supporters of Brexit, saying, um, rather like Trump, no, we should keep that money for ourselves. Why, why help people overseas when there's poor people in Britain? And at one level, this is understandable. But as David says, um, it's not just that doing good deeds is good. But this is soft power. It helps. It helps the peace of the world insofar as the world is at peace. We're going to continue with Linda Colley, with Peniel Joseph. We're going to add a third guest on a piece of this, Christian nationalism and Donald Trump. We'll play a little clip from his national prayer breakfast speech the other week. And we're going to clear the board again so we can let some Trump callers uh, back in, Trump voters, as well as people who did not vote for Donald Trump. How is this whole conversation striking anybody who hasn't called in so far? 1-844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255 on Indivisible. Indivisible is supported by Blue Apron, delivering gourmet recipes, pre-selected portions, and fresh ingredients to customers' doors. More at blueapron.com slash indivisible. This is Indivisible. The number to call is 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. And I'm Brian Lehrer from WNYC in New York, your Tuesday night host for Indivisible, our national call-in show for the first 100 days of the Trump administration, the show where we try to get out of our political echo chambers. And we've been doing it tonight, I think, and actually listen to our fellow Americans across political lines. There's a seat at this table for everyone, we say here at Indivisible. We talk about Trump changing norms on these Tuesday night shows. And we're talking tonight about Donald Trump, Steve Bannon, and nationalism, their effort to transform the political dynamic in this country from left versus right to what they call nationalist versus globalist. We took some calls from Trump voters and non-Trump voters. Now we're opening it up wide for anyone who wants to react 
maybe non-voters, <laughs> or anyone to anything you've heard so far from callers or guests. Further this conversation with a question or tell us how comforted or troubled you are at 844-745-TALK, 844-745-TALK, or 8255. Still with us are Princeton historian Linda Colley, a nationalism expert and author of books including Acts of Union and Disunion, and University of Texas historian Peniel Joseph. He runs the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy there and is an expert in black power, black nationalism, part of that. His books include titles such as Neighborhood Rebels, Black Power at the Local Level, And joining us now also is Emma Green, correspondent for The Atlantic, who writes about politics, culture, and religion. One of her recent articles was called Donald Trump Declares a Vision of Religious Nationalism after he said this at the National Prayer Breakfast on February 2nd. It was the great Thomas Jefferson who said, the God who gave us life gave us liberty. Jefferson asked, can the liberties of a nation be secure when we have removed a conviction that these liberties are the gift of God? Among those freedoms is the right to worship according to our own beliefs. That is why I will get rid of and totally destroy the Johnson Amendment and allow our representatives of faith to speak freely and without fear of retribution. I will do that. Remember. The Johnson Amendment limits how much political uh, lobbying, in effect, uh, people in religious organizations can do or the organizations themselves. But that was Trump at the National Prayer Breakfast last month. And Emma Green from The Atlantic, welcome to Indivisible. And why did you use the term Christian nationalism, nationalism, to describe that clip? So certainly during the National Prayer Breakfast, but at other times as well, during Trump's address to Congress and during his speech at inauguration, he has set up a tight twine between his vision of American values and a notion that these values are rooted in a Christian or perhaps Judeo-Christian vision. Uh, He's talked a lot about God using citations from the Bible at his inauguration speech, for example, to basically ground the idea that American values come from religion, that there's no separating religiously grounded morals from our mission both here domestically and also who our enemies are abroad. It sounds really harsh if you're not a Christian, right? Especially these days if you're a Muslim being banned from entering the country from one of those six nations, or maybe if you're a Jew seeing the rash of swastika drawings and those cemetery attacks. It's not what religious liberty necessarily is supposed to mean if it's Christian or one religion nationalism? I do think minority religious groups are feeling very attenuated right now, that their position in Trump's America is not really clear, certainly because of xenophobic acts and bigoted acts like the ones that you cited, but also because Trump has at once reached out a hand to religious minorities, but at other times sort of pushed them away. With Muslims, he's invited them to be partners in combating terrorism, but at the same time has set up a narrative about immigration that suggests Muslims aren't necessarily a core part of American values or ideology. Fahad in Laurel, Maryland. You're on Indivisible. Fahad, thanks for your patience. Hi. Hi, Brian. Thanks for taking my call. So what are you thinking after all this? Um, so 
So, I mean, I've, I've been listening patiently to all the uh, callers and, you know, sort of agree with all of them. I think everyone's opinion is uh, is definitely worthy. Um, on the my opinion on nationalism versus globalism is that I, I think no country in this day and age can really stick to either one extreme or the other. It has to be a balance between the two. Um, you know, on one hand, you know, one of the callers mentioned that um, you know, let, let's take care of our own stuff. Uh, you know, mow your own yard, and if then you have time or money left, then take care of your neighbor. Uh, but, you know, let's say we were to do that, but, you know, what if North Korea was to launch an attack on Japan? I mean, would we say, okay, let me check my budget, you know, let, let me check my bank account if I have time and money, then, you know, I'll... What, what I'll should we do, in your opinion, if that hypothetical, North Korea were to well, attack Japan, what should I mean, we do? So it kind of, it kind of, you know, uh, intertwines with uh, what another caller said about that, you know, it's not a totally selfish act. I mean, selfless act. So we would we would have to do something. Uh, it's just like if an out if a disease breaks out in Africa, and we were to just sit in our bubble and not do anything to help others. Eventually, you know that that whatever that threat is might you know come here and mm-hmm. threaten us. So before that happens, we need to help them out. But at the same time, I don't want to say that it's completely uh, selfish either. Uh-huh. Um, it, you know, so it, like I said, I mean, it has it, it has to be a balance. Right. And in some ways, I do agree with the caller that uh, yes, you know, we should uh, take care of our people and and, and not just you know uh, have like senseless wars and spend trillions and trillions of dollars. By the way, I'm just curious, who'd you vote for? Mm-hmm. So actually, I, I did not vote this time around. I actually, I was kind of, uh, I was not happy with either choice. If I had to lean more, I would lean towards uh, Clinton. But I live in Maryland, and Maryland is a heavily Democratic state. So uh, honestly, for a presidential election, it, it I don't want to, you know, uh, degrade uh, anyone's vote. But uh, Democrats always win. You know, it's a, you, it's a heavily, you were able to you were able to so. abstain without impact. Fahad, thank you you very much. Let's go to Nick in Long Island, New York. Hi, Nick. You're on Indivisible. Yes, thank you. Uh, um, uh, Although I did not vote for Mr. Trump, uh, he's uh, uh, part of the reason he's uh, too cavalier, tweets really. However, uh, he is a successful businessman, and I have to say that um, I have uh, firsthand uh, memories of um, my mother was an international ladies' government workers union worker, and she was chair lady of her union. She used to go to meetings. She went down to Washington in the early 70s to protest jobs going overseas. Uh, uh, she and her co-workers lost work significantly a lot because mm-hmm. this is really during the early 70s. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so when, when Mr. Trump talks about bringing uh, corporations back to the U.S. and then having uh, U.S., this rings true for me, and, and um, I, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a glimmer of hope there uh, that, he, that, the, that this is going to happen. Um, uh, right. uh, so know, that, what, one that... just needs to go into a, 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 any kind of a store, a, a Walmart. All the products are Japanese. Uh, are, I'm sorry, they're Chinese. And if you would hear about some of the products that have chemicals in them, are they? Are they? Are they? Is there any oversight? The sheetrock in South Carolina that leached out and it was rotting people's uh, uh, pipes out. Uh-huh. Uh, out those were Chinese products, and uh, and so there's a lot. There's a lot of. Um, uh, there is there is, it, he's not uh, I get your I, point it, and they so when they so you didn't vote for Trump but when they emphasize the economic nationalism given mm-hmm. your family's union history and all of that you're yes. 
you're you're giving you're giving it a shot. Nick, thank you very much. So, Professor Joseph, sort of to that point, Trump's nationalism runs pretty hot on the topic of immigration, but African Americans are Americans, descendants of slaves, especially. Never mind that the new HUD secretary calls them immigrants. He, he'd argue that too much immigration, Trump would argue, takes jobs from less educated blacks more than any other Americans. Is there a nationalist identity that can include African Americans in its scope in that way, economic nationalist, as opposed to lining up politically with the unauthorized immigrants? Well, no, I don't think so, because I think, one, when you talk about where blacks are in competition with immigrants in places like North Carolina, people have at least tried to suggest that. Um, it's not really a zero-sum game, because what you're trying to do, what, what Trump has made the argument in terms of immigrants um, stealing jobs uh, from from the black working class, black working class has never had um, a real equal opportunity when we think about American labor because of institutional racism, um, not just by the federal government, but also in terms of unions. And right now, the working class looks much different. So even as we talk about immigrants competing with black workers, uh, the working class is filled with, you know, single Latina women who are home health care uh, workers. And that was one of the, the, the problems of the election, that we said the working class was white and male, instead of actually talking about the real diversity of the working class and you know people we, we've got justice for janitors in los angeles we've got um, so many different um, multi-ethnic SEIU is one of the most diverse unions in the country and those are hospital workers who are you know predominantly women of color so i think um, when we think about trump and some kind of nationalism that includes african americans but would exclude immigrants um, there's really no conception there, because going back to the 19th century, and this is the kind of nationalism that Bannon and the alt-right um, and these, these white nationalists really articulate, that nationalism saw um, white working class in competition with the newly freed African-American men and women. Mm -hmm. So they, they looked at so-called free labor mm -hmm. as competition, and the one group that tried to get people together for a time was the populists, but even after a while, the populists um, succumbed to racism and tried to do basically a white um, populist movement at the expense of African Americans. So I don't think there's really a way to, to expand that pie, because that pie is really about a very specific conception of American democracy. And I think yeah. Trump has articulated that. It's, it's white, it's male, um, and it's, it's, uh, there's no room for, for other people no. in there. Now, listeners, our lines are full, but you can join the conversation on Twitter. Just use the hashtag IndivisibleRadio, hashtag IndivisibleRadio. And Aiden in Alexandria, Virginia, you're on Indivisible. Hi, Aiden. Hi there. Um, glad I could call in. Uh, there was just something that I want to talk about when I first, you know, turned on the radio and I heard you were talking about nationalism. Um, I'm actually a 10th grader here in Alexandria. All right. And last night I was studying uh, AP World History. And one of the concepts that we've been studying recently is the rise of nationalism uh, between 1750 and 1900. And there was one event that uh, really stood out to me, which was in France in the early 19th century uh, when the French uh, lower classes were sort of stirred by a sense of nationalism to revolt against their 
oppressive leader, uh, King Louis XVI, and this rise of nationalism among the people led to the public execution of Louis XVI. And I, I just, that really stood out to me when I, as something that almost parallels what is happening now. There was a, there's a growing sense of nationalism in America among Trump supporters and the Republican Party, and there's a lot of revolting against that. It's, it's, almost, it's almost the opposite of what, what happened in France, because in France, the people who were revolting were the nationalists. And now, it, you know, when you see the uh, Women's March and the March for Science and actually the Day Without Women, which is, cause, is causing my school system to have to close down because uh-huh. it's so successful, the people who are revolting are revolting against nationalism. And right. it's, it's just so interesting to look at the history and to see so does the hist- how things have changed and yet have stayed the same. Does the history that you're studying give you some additional sympathy for Trump voters than you might have had before the election? That is a really tough question. Um, not, not really. Un- unfortunately, I, 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 can't, I can't really bring myself to sympathize with people who voted for Trump. I definitely understand where a lot of them were coming from, but I, I just I, I disagree with them so much that I, I, I can't sympathize mm-hmm. with them. And in fact, studying this history recently has almost made me sympathize less with them because when you see the effects of this same thing happening in the past all over the world, you know, hundreds of years ago, and the same thing could happen today, I just, it, it, it puzzles me, really. Aiden, thank you so much. And tell your teacher that I said you should get extra credit for this call, okay? <laughs> I will. Thank, thank, thank you. you very much. So, Linda Colley, now we're back in your court. I think most yes. Americans probably first hear the word nationalism when we study, you know, the causes of World War I or something or Hitler and Mussolini in high school. How, what, what do you want to say to Aiden, and how much is nationalism a belligerent or warlike feeling? Um, it can, you know, nationalism is, is as I sort of said earlier, I think it's, it's very volatile. I, I, I mean, Aiden is, is quite right that, you know, you have this, this great French Revolution, which in some ways was actually a largely about liberty. Um, people wanted more rights. But out of the chaos of the French Revolution, uh, you then, of course, got the rise of Napoleon, um, who started invading other parts of Europe and Egypt and so forth. Um, Nationalism is volatile. It it doesn't have to be, but it can drift into violence uh, very easily. I mean, you know, one, one sees a different kind of nationalism at work at the moment in Russia. Uh, with another leader who's playing the populist, uh, Putin. Um, and uh, he's very effective, very popular. Uh, and he would like Russia to be much more of a great power uh, than it is at present. And, you know, that's potentially dangerous. And um, uh, Emma Green from, from the Atlantic, uh, I'll give you a last word here. Uh, before we run out of time, I see you wrote another article about how working-class millennials, Aiden, listen up, are not going to church as much as college-educated millennials, which is the opposite of what we usually hear, I think, that more educated people are less religious. 
So why would it be true? And for the sake of our theme tonight, I guess I'm curious if these fraying religious ties might leave working class people more susceptible to nationalist politics because then there's some new sense of community to latch on to. Yeah, I think it is a complex effect that we're seeing in white working class communities. So non-college educated, per hour wage type workers. These young people are going to church less than their college educated white peers. And what this is a sign of is, in my view, a sort of disaggregating from institutions. So it's not just that they're not going to church. It's also that they're not going to book club or bowling club or participating in the PTA. I think what this could produce is, as you say, a sense of nationalism, this idea that you latch on to a conceptual ideological American identity. But I also think a worrying opposite effect might be that these people sort of fade away from the political system, that they get increasingly more isolated, and that that in turn contributes to this sense of fraying and fracture that I think a lot of people are feeling on all sides in America right now. And that has to be the last word, and I think appropriately so, on the fraying and fracture on all sides. Emma Green from The Atlantic, Linda Colley from Princeton, Peniel Joseph from the University of Texas, thank you all so much for giving us some of your Tuesday night. Thanks so much. Thank you. And tomorrow night on Indivisible, there's a new Republican health care bill on the table, but not all conservatives are happy about it. Our Wednesday night Indivisible host, Charlie Sykes, will explain why and take your calls. I'll be back next Tuesday night. I'm Brian Lehrer. Keep the conversation going at hashtag Indivisible Radio. If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.